Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. How good did he do on those hard names? You guys can be seated. How many of you are like really glad I didn't ask you to read today? So I was talking to Jordan, and uh, he, I had asked him by text, you know, would, would you read for us? Uh, the Sunday, and he told Rachel, um, he said, you know, I, I just hope he doesn't have me read the genealogy <laughs> in Matthew 1, so that's great. Hey, whether you're joining us online or here on our campus, I want to say welcome to you. It's great to see you guys as uh, December starts, and uh, if you're a guest with us today and you don't know who I am, my name's Britt, and I serve Sundridge as the lead pastor here, and I would love to hopefully not be the first person to welcome you to our church, or if you're just watching this online, welcome. And, uh, you know, we think, we like to think that Sunridge is the kind of church that if you're coming from another church, that you can come here and you can grow and sink your roots deep in a family uh, called the church. And uh, we, we invite you to do that. And we're also a great place to explore faith. To kind of, if you're just considering uh, the, the, the truth of the gospel or the Bible, we hope that this is a great place for you to kind of process that and ask those questions even openly. So, how many of you, uh, you know it's Christmas season, so we're breaking out all the Christmas movies. How many of you have seen the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life? Wow, that is amazing. So, how many of you have never seen it? Raise your hand. So, I want to ask you a question. How can you even be a Christian? <laughs> If you've never seen this movie, I, I'm struggling here. If you're a fan today of It's a Wonderful Life, you might be interested to know that when the movie came out in 1946, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a big box office hit. But over time, it became, you know, one of the, the most beloved movies of all time. And after all, how could it not be so with Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, Right. So the title, though, It's a Wonderful Life, can be misleading because, you know, the main character, George Bailey, has so many problems going on in his life that he's thinking about ending his life on Christmas Day of all days. And here's the opening clip from the movie. I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him. Dear Father, Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. Help my son, George, tonight. He never thinks about himself, God. That's why he's in trouble. George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. Please, God, something's the matter with Daddy. Please bring Daddy back. Oh, man, I want to cry right now already. I cry in this movie every year, and I've seen it like, I don't know, I'm really old, and I watch it every year. So 
So why is everybody praying for George Bailey? Well, you're just going to have to watch the movie to find out because I'm not going to tell you. But we will be showing you some clips in each one of our messages in December because we titled this series, It's a Wonderful Mess. Obvious connection here. Because for most of us, a wonderful life seems beyond reach. Life is more of a mess than wonderful, especially at this season. And you know, it's pretty easy to, because you know your own life so well and others not so much, it's easy to think that, you know, everyone else has a wonderful life and somehow you ended up in the wrong line when people were lining up for the life you were going to have and you got in the wonderful mess line. So today, our talk is for every one of you who thinks that you really don't belong at church. Your life is more of a mess than wonderful. Maybe you're embarrassed if people were to find out what you were doing last night, where you were. Maybe you have a past that just keeps coming back, coming back, and so that your past isn't the past, it's your present, and you're not thrilled about where you are today. Maybe um, you avoid relationships at church. You just kind of walk in through the introvert entrance over here on that side, and, um, and then you sneak out. You're never going to join a life group because you're just, you know, you don't think that people are going to accept you if they start to find out your story. Some of you here, maybe you, have, you just have like a, just a line of broken relationships in your life, mistakes that you've made choices that have led you down the wrong path. And if you've been, uh, maybe some of you have been a Christian for a really long time, and you understand all the principles of the gospel, but you're still struggling every day. You're struggling to be the person that you think you should be. Some of you, even it's as simple as this, you came to church with your spouse, and you fought the whole way here. Or your kids were fighting in the back, and you, you wanted to slap them, but you couldn't reach them while you were driving. <laughs> and then when you pulled up in the parking lot and you started to see all the other Sunridge people, you started waving with your big happy face and uh, saying, welcome to Sunridge. It's so good to see all of you. you. Some of you are here today, and you say, Britt, my life doesn't seem so wonderful. Wonderful is for all the other people, but me... I'm more of a mess. So whether you're in that stage or not, whether you're exploring Christianity or you've been a Christian for 30 years and you're just trying to put one foot in front of the other, I have good news for you, and it's my big idea. I try to have a big idea with every message, and here it is. Jesus came for the mess. Jesus came for the mess. When an angel of the Lord came to Joseph, he said of his wife, Mary, Matthew 1.21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their mess. Did you see that? That's actually in the Greek language. And when I say that Jesus came for the mess, I'm talking about your mess and my mess. We're all a mess. So just look at the person next to you right now and just say, you are a mess. Yeah. We're all a mess. Romans 3.23, for everyone has made a mess of their lives. And when Paul writes everyone, he means it. In Romans 3.10, he wrote the scriptures say, no one is not a mess. 
Not even one. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, I kind of switched some words around there. <laughs> but I'm the preacher today, so I'm allowed to do that. There are four accounts in your New Testament of the life of Jesus. Two don't mention his birth at all, Mark and John. Luke announces his coming, but Matthew gives us his family tree. And he doesn't leave anybody out, as you're going to see. And that's important because in the first century, your family's genealogy was super, super important. And they paid people to compile, to do the research on their genealogy. Because in the first century, your family history was one of the most important things about you. It was one of the most influential things about where your life was headed and where you would end up. Your family's genealogy defines you. It's what gave you status or not. It's how doors of success were opened for you, how positions became available or not, and it foretold your economic future. So you were either privileged or disadvantaged by your family's history. Who your parents named? What, what was your parents' name? What was their position? in the t day and time, and what race were you? Can you imagine? Can you imagine that you could be incredibly talented, super smart, and very worthy, but if your lineage wasn't proper, you were going nowhere? And it's why honor and shame were so important in that culture. Everything rode on who your family was, so you would never bring f uh, shame to your family, and you would not bring up things from your past or your family's past that might bring shame, because it would be more than an embarrassment to you. It would affect your life and your sibling's life and, like, even your future family. So it follows when your family genealogy was being, you know, researched and put together, they would kind of, like, finesse it a little bit and, you know, Kind of bring out the accomplishments and the heroes that were in your genealogy. Uh, and often, the people who did this for you were instructed to leave out the shameful people or the losses, to kind of finesse and massage the whole picture of who you were. And that's uh, what makes Matthew 1 so interesting. And you're like, what? If not interesting, then it's very, very important in regard to who Jesus was and his birth and why he came and why people responded to him the way they did. So how do we know that Jesus came for the mess? Well, there are three things, and that's what I'm going to give you today. So number one, we know that Jesus came for the mess because it's implied in his family lineage. It's kind of surprising, actually, who's in this list and makes, makes the actual copy. Not only are there some hard names to pronounce in here in this genealogy, there's some really messy people. Let's talk about some of them. First of all, there's Abraham, right? The first patriarch of Judaism. Remember Father Abraham? He had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Anybody know that song? You're all great children's ministry volunteers, I think. <laughs> he's, he set forth the example of faith, but he, has, he wasn't always a stalwart of faith as we know him. In Genesis, twice, out of fear for his life, he lied about um, who his wife was, Sarah, and said that she was his sister, and almost, in both times, 
someone else took her as their wife. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many, and a great nation would be born from his family. This is God telling Abraham that. Yet in the meantime, Abraham and Sarah are childless, and they grow impatient. And Sarah convinces Abraham to have a child with one of their serving girls, Hagar. And I'm sure that didn't exactly feel kosher to her. And out of that relationship, Ishmael is born. And that story is in Genesis 12 through 16. Following that, there's Jacob. He's the grandson of Abraham. You heard of Jacob before? Uh, he's also an honored patriarch of uh, Judaism. Yet, he's the guy that defrauded his brother Esau out of his birthright. He, he kind of tweaked the will in his favor. And he became known as a con artist who gained a great deal of wealth at his father-in-law's expense. And he had 12 sons. And he chose to favor one of them far over the other 11. His name was Joseph. That's where the story of the coat, the special coat was. And he gave his, his favored son the special coat, which pretty much guaranteed that his brothers would beat him up every day. <laughs> and then there was Judah, the son of Jacob. He's a deceiver and a betrayer, the Old Testament says. And he's the brother of Joseph. He's the one that sold Joseph. In the slavery, it was his idea. And he profits from his brother's misery that he caused. And later, one of his sons dies. And he promised his daughter-in-law at that time, the widow, Tamar, that he would take care of her. Only he didn't really. And she ends up in the sex trade, which is almost the only way a woman in her situation would be able to survive. And Jacob ends up, coincidentally, being one of the local Johns that goes to visit her. And he doesn't recognize her. The Bible doesn't explain how, but he doesn't know who she is. And so he promises her payment and food. He's going to give her a goat. But he forgot his goat wallet. <laughs> so he, he makes a promise to her, and he gives her his staff and his signet ring as kind of a promissory note. And then uh, his payment guy goes out to pay, but he can't find her. He brings the hush goat with him, and only he can't find her. And then three months later, Judah hears that, um, that Tamar is pregnant, that she's been working as a prostitute, and she has humiliated his family and his good name. So what does he say? She should be burned alive. That's what he says. And when they come for her, she says, wait a minute. Take this seal and, and uh, this staff and tell my father-in-law that I am pregnant by the owner of these. How does that story end? Well, you're going to have to read Genesis 38 to find out. <laughs> so you've got a movie to watch and a chapter to read. But then last, let's look at David. Everyone heard of David, right? You've heard of him. He's a hero, a king, a poet, a musician, the true Renaissance man. The Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David, and he did. But was David perfect? Note the way Matthew frames David in his list of uh, Jesus' genealogy. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
the mother of Uriah's wife? Wait, wait, what? So there's a lot here. If Solomon is David's child, then wouldn't, wouldn't she be David's wife? What happened here? Was there a broken home? Well, sort of. Because David is, is David's biological son, and his mom is Bathsheba. But the way Bathsheba becomes David's wife is this lurid story because at the time, she is Uriah's wife, one of David's best warriors. David was the king. And because he was the king and he was getting fat and happy, um, he becomes privileged. He feels like he can just do whatever he wants to do. And instead of going out and leading his military as kings did in that time, he's strolling around on his balcony of his palace while Uriah is out in battle, by the way, and he happens to see Bathsheba bathing. And he keeps watching. So he's a peeping David. <laughs> and cringy. He's the cringy king. And he has his servants bring her to the palace and he forces himself on her and she gets pregnant. And, and yet he wants her for one of his wives. But that's a problem, right? Because she's married to Uriah. And he's in battle. So there's no way to cover this thing up. So he has Uriah come home for a furlough, and he sets him up with this romantic weekend. And uh, long story short, Uriah is too honorable to sleep with his wife in the comfort of his own bed and, uh, while, you know, while his soldiers are in battle. And he can't understand why he's being so privileged. It feels wrong to him. So the plan's falling apart. So then David tells his general to send you, put Uriah in the front, which he would be because he's a great warrior. And then when you enter into battle, everyone back away from him. And that's what they did. And Uriah's killed in battle. So problem solved, right? David's sins are hidden, and he gets the girl. There's a lot more to that story, but you're going to have to read it in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. <laughs> See what you're missing when you don't read the Old Testament? So Matthew puts it all out there, you guys. There's nothing to hide. These are people that are in Jesus' lineage. You see, Jesus didn't just come from the, for the mess. He came from the mess. His human genealogy is filled with imperfect people, just like you and me. The perfect son of God had very less than perfect people in his family tree. So if you ever thought to yourself, you know, I really like, I, you know, I'm afraid to go to church because the walls will cave in on me because everyone else there is so perfect, you might want to change your mind. Now, there's another thing that indicates that Jesus came for the mess, and it's revealed through his disciples. There's his genealogy, but then there's his disciples. You know, Jesus had many disciples, but the gospel indicates that there were 12 that were kind of his closest confidants. And just who were these guys? Were they star pupils? Well, did they come from the gate program? <laughs> were they valedictorians of the Hebrew schools at their synagogues? Maybe they achieved the highest scores on the HAT, the Hebrew aptitude test. <laughs> nope. Who were these guys? They're Simon Peter. If you know anything about your Bible, you, you picture him as this boisterous, impulsive, big-talking, crusty fisherman. He is definitely an Enneagram 8. 
And with all his big talk, he's the one that when a little girl, after Jesus is crucified, calls him out, he folds like a cheap suit. There's a couple of others uh, that were fishermen too, brothers, James and John. Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder, probably because they had such stormy personalities. But they would flash in anger. And they actually asked Jesus to destroy people who were not responsive to his message then. And then at the same time, these sons of thunder coaxed their mommy into asking Jesus to make them the most important people in heaven. (laughs) Then there's Thomas, who spent three years with Jesus, and he still doubted. Talk about someone who wasn't paying attention. And sometimes, don't you get the picture that like at one point, Jesus just looked at Thomas and said, really? (laughs) Then there's Simon the Zealot. We don't know that much about him. He kind of remains a mystery. But a zealot came out of a Jewish, uh, a traditional Jewish political party who would use terrorism to disrupt cities and, just, and uh, Roman trade routes. And they were constantly creating unrest. They would ambush soldiers, and even they would assassinate key leaders. Then there's Judas, the money guy, right? Pretty much all he cared about. He's the one that betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And he pretty much ruined a really cool name. (laughs) Quite the crew, right? If you were going to change the world one person at a time, would this ragtag lot be your team? Jesus' crew was a mess. And last, it's obvious that Jesus came for the mess because one of his disciples in particular, which I've not talked about, the author of this gospel that we're reading today, um, we know that Jesus came for the mess because it's displayed by Matthew. It's displayed by Matthew. He's the author of this biography and one of the 12 disciples. He's the one that dropped Jesus' messy lineage into the beginning of his biography of Jesus' life. You know, New Testament scholars uh, observe how each gospel is unique in its own way and how, in its perspective of Jesus' life. Matthew presents Jesus as the heir of King David and the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. He is the true and worthy king of the kingdom of God. But in doing so, as we've seen, he gives us this list of people who were great and honored founders in the history of Judaism, but definitely not perfect. They were messy. They were born into a mess. They were a mess, and they contributed to the mess, a mess that only God could redeem. And Matthew, of all, knows this full well because he was a mess when he met Jesus. He was more than a mess. He was messed up. See, he's different than the disciples that we know the most about, right? You got some fishermen who are crusty, a little rough around the edges, but they're still pretty devout. And you have a zealot who was maybe a little scary to sit next to in synagogue because he was so radical, but you can't say that he wasn't committed to the faith. And you have Judas, the money guy, But he was so good at his hypocrisy that he disguised his greed. But Matthew, he's on a whole other level. 
Matthew doesn't just have a past, like he drank too much or he used profanity or he partied like a rock star. He wasn't just kind of rough around the edges. To anyone who was Jewish, he was a sellout, a tax collector, or some of your Bibles say a publican. So what's a tax collector in the first century? These were people who were recruited by Rome to collect taxes from their own countrymen locally. And okay, that's kind of a distasteful job that had to be done, but it was different than the IRS. Collecting taxes is a job that must be done. Everyone has to pay taxes as much as we hate it. We, we like roads, though, and we like infrastructure, and we like our military to be able to protect us. And the Roman tax actually wasn't that bad. It was about 1%. But there are other taxes, too, on real estate, and there was sales tax. So what made a tax collector in the first century so repugnant? See, the taxes that were collected at the local level from the indigenous people, uh, the tax collectors, they were recruited by Rome, and then they used these locals because they knew the scene. They knew what people were making better than the Romans could, and so they could make sure that they got closer to what they actually owed. But here's the thing. Rome didn't pay their tax collectors. Instead, they gave them free reign to make a living by how much more they could make over the 1% or so. And with the variety of all the taxes and the day and time, and you know, like you couldn't account for things as well, so there was no effective way to track how much extra money they collected. But what I can tell you is that tax collectors in the first century were very, very wealthy. See, they did more than skim a little. A more accurate depiction of what they did, we would call it extortion. They bullied people and they threatened them, their own people. John the Baptist actually called them out. He said, stop collecting more than is prescribed. Stop collecting more than, than you actually need and what the Roman government calls for. So why would someone do this for a living? To betray their own people. Only one reason. They cared more about money than anything else. And so they would sell out their friends. They would sell out their family in order to have the lifestyle that they really wanted. You, I mean, you can't even think of something more crass and craven than what a tax collector did. So if you were living in the first century as a faithful Jew, how would you feel about that person? Would they be invited to your block party? Would they get an invitation to your, soul, to your son's bar mitzvah? Would you be seen hanging out at Starbucks in Jerusalem, having a coffee with them? Tax collectors were despised. They were ostracized, and they were shamed. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 18, when he talked about somebody who repetitively sinned against their brother, that should treat them like a tax collector. That's Matthew. And then Jesus steps off a boat in his village. And maybe Matthew's heard some stories. Maybe he's encountering Jesus. We don't know. But he tells the story 
of his encounter with Jesus, his face-to-face encounter in Matthew 9, verses 1 through 13. And we don't know. We don't know what Matthew's uh, mindset was at this time. Maybe, maybe he's tired of living the way that he's lived. Maybe he's under a load of guilt for what he's been doing. Maybe he's tired of living so isolated and despised in spite of the, the pleasure and the comfort that he has in life. And maybe he's seen Jesus some, do some things, or maybe he said some things that have like pricked his heart. So maybe he's second-guessing the path that his choices have put him on. You know, you never know what people are thinking, do you? I mean, maybe Matthew was probably raised with solid Jewish values, very traditional values in that time. And yet he abandoned them so long ago so he could have nice things. And then in verse 9 of Matthew 9, as Jesus went on, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. So the scene here is Matthew's right in the middle of doing what he does. He's in his booth collecting his taxes, and Jesus walks up to the window in his booth. And what does he say? Hey, scum, you're, you're not worthy. You need to clean up your act. No, he says, follow me. He doesn't say, hey, Matthew, all you got to do is say a little prayer and become a better person. He doesn't say, here's some things that you might want to start doing so that you can make up for all the bad things that you've done. So do some good stuff. No. He says, follow me. And you know, he did. And you can tell it was genuine. He didn't just get religion. Matthew doesn't say how much longer after this is, but he invites Jesus over for a party at his house, a mixer with all of his friends. And in verse 10, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. He's got friends in low places, right? And he has all of his friends over to meet Jesus. Throws a big party so that they can meet Jesus as well. All these tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. So Jesus is hanging out with Matthew and these disreputables. Then Matthew, the messed up tax collector, tells us about an interaction that happens at his party. It's one of those moments that, you know, it's one of those times that like something happens and it really sticks in your mind. It must obviously have done so here because Matthew writes it down with such detail. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw what was happening there, that Jesus was hanging out with these people, he, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? This is the New Living Translation, by the way. <laughs> it actually is. It actually is. And when Jesus heard this, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor. The sick do. Sick people do. Whoa. When the religious leaders start to throw shade on Jesus for hanging out with scum, he says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. That's what's standing out 
There was a lot that happened at this party, right? But in Matthew's record, this is the thing that he writes most about of the entire party. This is the thing that stands out, so he records it. And I don't know about you, but that tells me that like it hit him a certain way. Do you know that Matthew always refers to himself in his own Gospels as Matthew the tax collector or Matthew the publican? It's like he could never or he never wanted to forget where he came from. But the words of Jesus starkly stand out so many years ago to him when he writes his account Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he recalls, like in a little further interaction, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I have not come to call the righteous. I came for the messy. See, Matthew knew, perhaps more than anyone else in that room at that party, exactly what that meant. Can we, can we imagine, if you were him, how that impacted him? It's too late for him to be a nice Jewish boy. Maybe he tried earlier in his life. Maybe, maybe he tried to do the right thing. And he just walked away. Maybe it was all at once. Maybe he just kind of slipped away a little bit at a time. But he was raised a certain way. He had these values you know, like, in, you know, like in his life, put in his heart. And he decided just to throw it all away for what he wanted most. At least he thought he did. And he's a mess. But that's who Jesus came for. He came for the messy. Matthew sees that Jesus changed the way we relate to God. Matthew was out. He could not be in places where devout people gathered. Matthew grasped the fact that grace is not earned. The grace of God is not earned. It's offered. And Matthew understands that it's not what he can do for God, but what Jesus did for him. Because Jesus sees us through his eyes, not yours, not others. Jesus sees not who we are today, but who we can be. And Jesus sees what he will do through us, not we have done, not what we've done. Jesus came for the mess. Now, I don't know why you're here today or why you're listening online. Maybe you've never even thought about Christianity this way. Maybe you have all these ideas of what Christian faith is like, and it's about cleaning up your act and becoming a respectable person. Um, but maybe for you, um, because of where you are, because of the choices that you can see that you've made, because of your past, you know, you can see that you're a mess. And this Christmas season um, doesn't look like that idyllic, wonderful Christmas that you hear about. Maybe like George Bailey, a lot of your friends are praying for you right now. Maybe you think you have no friends. You feel maybe like you're one of the disreputables 
far from God. And you know what? Maybe you are. Maybe it's, it's too late for you to be a nice church boy or a respectable church lady and you feel far from God. I'm going to ask the band to come up and when they do, while they do, you know what people far from God know? They know that they're far from God. They know that they can't earn God's favor. They've tried. They know they're a mess. But here's what else they know or should. It's something that Matthew, having lived it, revealed in his life, and he wanted everyone else to know about it in his account of Jesus' life from the very get-go of his book, of his biography of Jesus. You can see that he is so blown away by Jesus that he said, I have to tell this story. And you can see it in verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their mess. Jesus came for the mess. That's you. That's me. Maybe if you, some of you, like you're Christians right now, and all you really need is a reminder today. Whatever you're beating yourself up about and that you're not hitting the standard, God doesn't want us to stay in the swamp. But maybe you just feel like you're, you're so far from God, you can never come back. That is not true. You can see it in the very first chapter of, Jesus, uh, of Matthew's gospel. Then, in fact, he came for the people that are the most messy. Some of you, like you're, you know, you've never been a Christian, you've never thought about Christianity this way, and you should take a moment today and receive Jesus as the gift that he is to the world. Christianity is the only religion that doesn't demand that you clean up your act before you join. We spend our entire life following Jesus the best that we can. But our acceptance with God isn't based on today's performance. I hope that you guys will join us and you will invite your friends wherever you're coming from for uh, this month of December as we go through the series that we're just calling It's a Wonderful Mess. Because the truth is, there's levels, right? But gosh, we're all in a mess. We're all a mess. But the truth is that that mess can bring us toward God, not push us away. And because of Jesus, because of what the retransformation that he does in us, the way he reconciles us with God and the work that he does in our lives through the Holy Spirit, um, it can be a wonderful mess. Let's think about that this morning as we stand and worship together. Thank you, church. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.